Well, good morning. Good morning. All right. You all know you have to go do shopping today, and you're excited about that and all the other things going on. If you're in Kidmo, you can head on back. <coughs> Kidmo is, they are having their first time of doing live skits and things back there today, so we're looking forward to hearing how that goes. And uh, if you've got a second through fifth grader and you want to go see where they're headed, um, they're going to have a good time this morning. We're glad that you're here this morning, and uh, we're glad that you've chosen to be with us. Uh, I told David and Herman, if we're going to have Kylo Ren and Darth Vader up here, they've got to get saved today because we're talking about a Redeemer, and uh, so we've got to stay consistent with what we're talking about. Uh, <coughs> we are glad that you're here. Uh, next week is going to be our Christmas Eve service. Normally, we do a Christmas Adam service, and so you may be used to that. And if you are, we're not doing Christmas Adam this year. Since Christmas Eve is on Sunday, we're going to have our Christmas service on Sunday morning. That'll be a little different. Uh, it will be <coughs> just like our Christmas Adam service in that we'll do a lot of carols. We're going to have candlelight, communion, um, a lot of time for reflection. Uh, not so much going to be teaching a lot, but uh, I do want to kind of close out this whole series on Redeemer with a few minutes next week. So I hope that you'll be here for that. We're going to bring some food, some Christmas food with us. I hope that you'll do the same and get here a little early. So sometimes we'll have a little Christmas party with our Christmas Adam service. Um, I know you've got tons of stuff to do on Christmas Eve. So, so be here, bring some cookies or some snacks or something that you like at Christmas time, and we'll, we'll do all that together and, and kind of have a pre-service party together um, on Sunday morning. So we hope that you'll come and join us and bring some friends uh, for that. Also, if you're interested at all in small groups, stick around after. Uh, we're going to be sharing a little bit about that. Uh, 15, 20 minutes should be about what that's going to look like, um, and then you guys can go on about the things that you need to do this week. Uh, I want to wrap up <coughs> the idea of the Redeemer for the most part today, and I want to give you a heads up that I could chase several rabbits. Uh, what I'm going to talk with you about today is a lot about where i am just been kind of living in my own faith for the last, well, last couple of years, and... So there are many things, that I, many directions we can go this morning, uh, and so I'm prepared to go in lots of different directions. Uh, I feel like the Holy Spirit may lead us in a, maybe a couple of different ways of spending our time this morning. We'll see how that goes. Um, if you've got version on your phone, you can still follow along with my notes, and I want to talk to you uh, a, a little bit about what happened in the time following Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and what happened in that early church. Now, if you've been with us for the last few months, uh, if you're a history buff, you have absolutely loved kind of this last quarter of our sermons. If you're not so much, then you've endured it. Uh, but if you haven't been here, we have talked a lot about where the church has been in the last 2,000 years. And I am absolutely convinced that the church today, the evangelical church today, especially that we are accustomed to seeing, is in very much a response to what happened and in the Reformation. But if we go back and we look at what happened right at the time that the church was beginning, we see some really amazing things that God was doing in the nation of Israel specifically. Things that had been prophesied that came true. Practices, supernatural practices that they had been practicing since the time of Moses that actually began to change in the way that God worked through them. And so there's a lot that I want to share with you about that period of time. And the reason that I wanted to do this, and I wanted to do this during this series, is because I, I don't know about you, 
But as I get up in the morning and look at what's going on in the world, it's not really a great picture, is it? There's a lot of unrest in the world. There's a lot of division in the world. And there's not, quite honestly, a lot of hope right now if you are watching the news or you're watching reality TV or you're just seeing what's going on just in entertainment. It, it, it can be a depressing thing. And as I think back about um, what Paul said, that, he, that to live is Christ but to die is gain, I think there are many people that know Jesus that understand that, that just long for the time to go be with Jesus because the world is broken but at the same time, recognizing to live here in this period of time is to experience him in new and different ways and also to be his presence in a world that needs him. And for me, some of, the, some of what I want to share with you historically are not things I ever had an interest in as a young believer. They're not things that I ever thought about. And a lot of this that I want to share with you, you probably have never heard before. And the reason for that is, I think, twofold. One is the fact that when you become a follower of Jesus, you are granted a certain gift of faith in which you are able to receive and accept the knowledge and the belief that Jesus is real, that Jesus is Lord, that he is our Savior, that he rose from the dead, and that uh, we can follow him. And as an early believer for, for myself, I really did not have a problem with faith. And I believe that, again, is, was a gift from him, not something inherent in me. Now, the gift of faith is a little different than what I'm talking about. The gift of faith, the spiritual gift of faith, is one, if you know anybody that just has a supernatural faith, that they just don't worry about stuff, they don't have fears, I mean, they just, they trust God implicitly everywhere. You, you talk with them, and you're just amazed at their faith. That is the spiritual gift of faith. I'm certainly not one that lives life without doubt or without worry or without fear. I have a healthy dose of that, just like probably you do. But yet within our lives, once we know Christ, we are given this gift that we can trust him. And sometimes that's enough not to dig deeper in our faith and not to dig deeper in our knowledge and belief of him. I believe I believe when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I believe Jesus was real, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and then that he went to heaven and is waiting for me and is preparing a place for me when I get there. For many believers, that is enough. But what I find in my own life through these last few years of my life is that has ceased to be enough for me. Now, I don't mean that the gospel, I don't believe it. I don't mean that I don't hope for a life with Christ after this life. I, I don't mean that. But what I mean is there is something that the Holy Spirit does within us that should draw us deeper. It should draw us to want to know more, to, be, to believe and to understand and to have deeper faith. There is something that is in us that draws us that. That something is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit draws us deeper, but we don't go deeper, then we begin to have a tension within us that is hard to explain. And I believe one of the reasons that so many people struggle in faith is that they don't see the miraculous works of God in their life every day. They hear about them. They read about them. They have a token of faith that says, well, God did those at one time, but they don't experience them in their own life. And I know for a couple of years ago, I just remember praying, God, 
I, I, I'm not content not experiencing your miraculous work in my life. I'm not content with this. Because if you're not still miraculously working in the ways that we live in our lives, how can we possibly tell people that this is absolutely true? And I remember in that moment, it was, it was not that God did anything different for me, but I remember an invitation that just said, you know, you need to give up more of yourself if you want to receive the miraculous things of me. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so weird. I don't know what that looks like. At the, in much of the church, when we talk about growing churches or building churches or going deeper in churches, a lot of what we talk about and what you see if, when you see churches that just explode in attendance uh, for, for pastors, just I've, I've shared a little bit about this, but for pastors, we kind of look at those people and we think they just know Jesus better than us. <laughs> They're just better leaders and they just know Jesus better than us. And I remember thinking early in my ministry, you know, when you really mature as a leader, your church explodes. And, and so several of us have wrung our hands thinking, God, what is it that the church needs to do to explode in our communities around us. Because most pastors I know, that's what they want. They want to see God do an incredible work and see lives changed in mass in entire communities. And so as we began looking at a lot of places that, you know, you just see this explosion. It just feels like God is do, just, man, really doing something there. It's interesting what we found is that the majority of explosive churches explode from the attenders of other churches. There's kind of a mass migration from all these other churches and they kind of converge. Now that's not to say that many of our large churches aren't doing miraculous, wonderful things. But often what we see is that there's a restlessness among Christians that are moving from place to place because they need something fresh and new. And we have settled with kind of a shallower faith. And so the next thing new is a new environment or a new way of worship or a new type of teaching or a new just auditorium in which we sit when we come to worship. But what God is inviting us to is a deeper walk with him. And in that deeper walk with him, what we see is that God is inviting us to experience him as our redeemer in new and exciting and fresh ways. And so what I want to share with you are some of the ways that God did that in the past and my absolute belief and experience that the more that we pursue that deeper relationship with him, the more we see miraculous things in our world around us. So it's not that they're not happening. Oftentimes we just don't see them. So I want to share with you some things that happened in that first century and some things I believe that this is calling us to today. Beginning in Matthew chapter 27... Beginning with verse 45, we begin to see some of the amazing things God did at the, at the crucifixion of Jesus to change the way the world saw redemption. Starting with verse 45, it said, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one, of the, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So they, 
They misunderstood. Elijah was such a central figure of faith for them. They misunderstood what was happening with Jesus. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the curtain was literally the veil that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. So you, as an average Jewish citizen, could come into the temple and offer worship But only the priest who had been properly cleansed and properly called and was fit for service was able to actually go into the Holy of Holies because this is where God was. You need to understand between all of Scripture, there is a consistent story broken up into two covenants. The first covenant was given to us through Moses. This is the law. This is the Ten Commandments. And one of the things we have to remember whenever we read through some of the earlier history of humanity, when we talk about some of the early patriarchs, Jacob, Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, you know, those folks that we kind of hold up on a pedestal. If you'll go back and and study their lives, you'll find some of them were sometimes some pretty terrible folks. They made some really bad decisions. Not only did they make some bad decisions, had they done those things today, they would have been arrested. You know, we know you shouldn't be doing that. If you're not sure if what I'm telling you is true, take your child, put them on a sacrificial table, take a knife, hold it over them, act like you're going to stab your child, see what happens. It's not going to go well. You're going to lose your child, DCS is going to show up and take your child, and you're going to go to prison. Uh, you know, that's what's going to happen. And yet, when we look at the new and at the two covenants, the one with Moses, we understand much of what happened and the reason that we hold these guys up in, as pillars of faith is because while they still had the knowledge of good and evil, they did not yet have the law. So they had the ability to know the difference between right and wrong, but they did not yet understand what God considered right versus wrong. That was the purpose of the law. That was the new covenant, it, or the first covenant, that said, follow what I say is right, And you will be right with me. You will be righteous. Now, if you break one of these laws, then somebody has to die because the wages of sin is death. So that someone in that new covenant was always an animal. An animal had to die. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. But in that time, once they received the Ten Commandments, God came to dwell with them in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable temple. God was there and they would create the holy of holies and surround it with a veil so that only the priest could go in there. And if you went in and you were not clean, it was, it was not a job you would want. If you were not purified, they would, when the priest would enter the holy of holies, they would wrap a rope around your leg, attach a bell to it, so that as long as you walked into the, temp- the Holy of Holies and you were moving around, the little bells are dinging and they know you're okay. But when the bell stopped ringing, they knew you were not approved and God had struck you down dead in the Holy of Holies. And no one's going in after you. It's like someone, you know, falls into a nuclear reactor. <laughs> Who's diving in after them? You know, you're not going to dive in after them. Instead, they pull them out with a rope <laughs> and wait for somebody else to go in. That veil separated God from people. So as we look at what's happening, even at the crucifixion of Jesus, we see God already doing something in the physical world to demonstrate a change of redemption 
from the old to the new covenant. <coughs> Excuse me. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. <coughs> Excuse me, from top to bottom. And the earth shook. Second thing that happened. And rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This was prophesied that this was going to happen. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, this is what happened if you were there living at this time. You were used to the temple. You were used to the veil. The veil was replaced every year. And you were used to this being a very ceremonial, important thing. And so if you were there to watch, what scholars tell us by looking at all the accounts is that an eclipse happened. At the same time that eclipse was happening, there was a great earthquake. And scientists will tell you there is no correlation between an eclipse and earthquakes. The eclipse did not cause the earthquake. They were two separate physical events that happened at the same time. The earthquake was so severe that the tombs of those who had already passed broke open and spilled out onto the ground. And people walked out of the tomb, went into the city, and began to talk about Jesus. Now, we don't hear a lot about these folks. I mean, even if they didn't get up and walk in and start talking to people, the fact that it was prophesied that they would come out of their graves and that they did come out of their graves was a testimony in and of itself. But what it literally says is that they came in and they began talking about Jesus. Now, that's pretty powerful stuff. And when people saw this, they saw a tangible, physical response of God working in the world And all of them that saw it were in awe and said, this was the Son of God. Now, that's pretty significant. That's a big deal. But that's not the only thing that happened. Now, if it were the only thing that happened, that's enough. Wouldn't you agree? I think that would be a big deal. I would love that on the day that I die that there is an eclipse and there is an earthquake And then, you know, like graves spew out of the ground. I would love for that to happen when I die. I think that would be a fantastic send-off for me. I don't really think that's in the cards. But if that were to happen, you know, I'd be okay with that. But what, what is happening at this time with Jesus is that his death represented a radical shift in how God was going to work in the world. Now, if you remember what I've shared before in that first century time, Christmas was not something that was often celebrated. We celebrate Christmas like it's the greatest thing in the world, but that was not something that was a big deal for early Christians. The big thing for early Christians was when he was resurrected because that symbolized salvation. That was what was most important. Through the years, we have also shifted our focus to the coming of the Redeemer into the world and celebrating his birth. But for early Christians, they were less concerned about when he came into the world than they were about how he went out of the world. Because he ushered in a new time and a a change in the way that redemption happened. As we look through this old covenant, I want you to keep in mind as we move forward that the word redemption means to take ownership by paying a debt. We had a debt. That debt was the sin that was in our life. And in Scripture, the debt of sin was always paid 
through the sacrifice of animals. That was always the way that redemption came to the people of Israel. You would sin, and if there needed to be an atonement, and that atonement meant that somebody had to die, blood had to be shed. When Jesus died, God demonstrated that there was a better way, an eternal redemption of Christ through miraculous signs. Now, Jews today still celebrate the celebra- or the festival, the, the time of year that's, that's right around September, that they would atone for the sins of their nation. It's called Yom Kippur. It, it means the day of atonement. And it was told to them back in the time of Moses that this is the way they would act and this is what they would do. And they still do these practices even today, still waiting for the Messiah, those that don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. We read about it in Leviticus 16, and it says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. So the one providing the sacrifice needed to be clean. He made an atoning sacrifice for himself. Then he shall take two goats. This is important. I want you to to remember this. This is important. It shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. Now, the way that they would cast lots is they would take a white stone and they would take a black stone. And they would, you know, roll them like dice. But whichever one came up was the goat that was to be sacrificed. And so they would cast lots to determine which of these two goats. Both would be sacrificed, but both would have different purposes. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, and it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Azazel representing evil the one that would receive all of the condemnation for sin. So let me put this into context for what would happen. Once a year at Yom Kippur, they take two goats. And these two goats are supposed to be pretty, pretty much identical. Both are supposed to be clean. Both are supposed to be suitable sacrifices. And they would bring these two goats together. So this is a representation of what they would do. On each goat... They would wrap a red sash or some kind of red cloth around each goat. And that was to symbolize sin. One goat would be representative of one die. Another goat would be representative of the other die. It really didn't matter which one. But the white stone would mean that the goat would be sacrificed in the temple and his blood would be sprinkled over the mercy seat, over the tabernacle. It was the cleansing of the implements of worship by blood. The second goat, something unique would happen to it. That goat would be brought to the priest. So next picture. He would put his hands on the head of the goat and would pray and confess the sins of Israel. And supernaturally, these sins were supposed to be transferred from the people of Israel to the goat. This was the goat that was for Azazel. Once he had... Pass those sins onto the head of the goat. 
Scripture says that they are supposed to go out into the wilderness. And so tradition tells us that the priest or whoever was going to carry off the goat would walk for five days, five Sabbaths. For five days they would walk out until they reached a cliff. And once they got there, they would push the goat off the cliff and the goat would die representing the atonement of the nation of Israel. Now here's where things get interesting. As I told you before, here's are two goats that are prepared for that, a picture of two that are prepared in the same way. They have red strips of cloth around their, their heads or their neck. They would also rip a piece off of, of the azazel goat's red cloth or strip or whatever they were using, and they would tie it to the temple gate or the temple door. And whenever that animal, that goat, was pushed off the cliff and died, representing the atonement of the nation of Israel, something supernatural would happen. In Jerusalem, that strip that was tied to the door would miraculously turn white. Now, we have, we have many ancient historical writings of Jews attesting that this is the way this practice happened. Now, the reason that I'm telling you this is because when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, all of these miraculous things happened. The veil was ripped, representing that the presence of God was no longer contained within the temple. There was an earthquake, and bodies came out of the ground, and they prophesied about Jesus. And then, interestingly enough, when we go back and we read the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is, was written by Jewish scholars. There are two different ones written by Jewish scholars between the 3rd and 5th century A.D. So this is after all of these events happened. If you followed any of the history we've talked about, the temple would stand after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The temple would stand for 40 more years before Rome would destroy it. This is when Nero came in, and as I've told you before, rebellions were happening all over Israel. And eventually the emperor Nero said, I'm done with the rebellions. This is when he sends Vespasian in. You may have heard Vespasian in your history studies. Vespasian goes in and they destroy the temple. Interestingly enough, the Talmud, of which there are two different versions, there's one written by Jews in Jerusalem, and there, are one, there is one written by Jews in Babylon, named the Jerusalem Talmud, and guess what the other name was? The Babylonian Talmud. Yeah, it's very original, isn't it? And in both of those accounts of history, this practice, among other things, miraculously changed at the time of this 40-year period from the time that Jesus was resurrected to the time the temple was destroyed. Yom Kippur continues. Now, what they tell us is that every time they would cast lots previous to this, a white and a black stone, it was inconsequential which one came up. It really didn't mean that one goat was better than the other. Just they would cast the lots and they would come up, sometimes the white one, sometimes the black one. But yet for 40 years following the resurrection of Jesus, the white stone never once came up. For 40 years straight, the Talmud tells us that the black stone was always the one that came up. Statistically impossible. A second miracle that happens is that every time they would take the Azazel goat out to the cliff, push it off the cliff for the atonement of sins, the scarlet thread would never again for the next 40 years would never again turn white. 
it would remain scarlet. In other words, God was not performing the supernatural demonstration that their sins had been atoned for by this goat. Now, if we go through and we read some more, we find that some more amazing things happen. But let me, let me read to you what the Jerusalem Talmud says. It says, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the western light went out. I'll talk about that in a minute. The crimson thread, this is that strip on the door. The crimson thread remained crimson, and the lot for the Lord always came up in the left hand, which never happens every time, but it does for those 40 years. They would close the gates of the temple by night and get up in the morning and find them wide open. That's what the Jerusalem Talmud said. Different group of Jews said this in the Babylonian Talmud. Our rabbis taught during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for the Lord did not come up in the right hand, nor did the crimson colored strap become white, nor did the westernmost light shine, and the doors of the temple would open by themselves. Now, why am I telling you this? Why, why Christmas? This isn't a Christmas story. Why am I telling you this at Christmas? So the other things that are referenced in the Talmud are the fact that the doors would be closed every night. And inexplicably, every night or every morning, they would come back to the temple gates and they would have opened all by themselves. No, no explanation, either that or there were some just kids that were really pulling a fast one on the priests. But the fact that this happened for 40 years is an amazing story that the temple is now open. Not to hold anyone in, not to hold anyone out. That was a complete change in the way that, that their, their process happened. Another miracle, which was also just as amazing, was the menorah. I've got a picture of the menorah. The menorah is the stereotypical image of Judaism. You'll find it on the flag, the Israeli flag. It is a, a, a crucial, crucial thing that they were instructed to light as part of the temple ornaments. And it was described that there would be a candlestick with three branches on either side. Now, there's a lot of disagreement on what the three branches represent. Some believe that they represent a foreshadowing and revelation talks about the seven lampstands that would represent the seven churches. Others believe that it represents other things. Regardless, the center main lampstand represented the light of God that would continually shine. Now, some of you have candles in your houses that are not real candles. Anybody? They flicker. You can leave them on all day long and they'll never burn down, right? But what we see here is that this candle, it was a full candle just a few minutes ago. And now it's almost completely burned down. And so what they would do in the menorah, although most menorahs you see in, in depictions have candles on them, most menor- the menorah that they used in the temple actually used oil with wicks. And so every night the priest would fill the menorah with oil. And by morning, all the candles would have gone out because all the oil would be gone except for one. The center candle. The candle that represented the light of God. It always remained lit up to the resurrection of Jesus. There was no explanation for this. It was understood that God was miraculously maintaining this light above all odds to represent his presence and his power, and that he was there with them. 
But yet when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that candle never again stayed lit. It would not stay lit. It would continually go out. The priests tried everything they could. They would have vats of oil nearby to make sure everything stood lit. And yet the light continually would go out. When we read in Scripture about all of these things and all of the things that they are doing, Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. What I want you to see in this is that God was demonstrating to Israel in supernatural, physical ways that Jesus was the final atonement. What he was showing them is that God was never held up into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is now just an empty room. And that there was a significant change in the covenant from what Moses had given to the instructions given to them for the atonement of sin to what happened now that Jesus has become our Redeemer. He has paid our debt. He has become, for all intents and purposes, the Azazel Goat. That goat's name, by the way, had, been, was, was, had come to be known as the scapegoat. Whenever you hear that phrase, this is where it comes from. So the scapegoat is the one who takes all of our sin upon them, and they atone for us. So when we talk about the scapegoat, I don't know if you all still use scapegoat. Do you all, still use the, do you all even know what a scapegoat is? You do, kids? You guys know? No, Jake does. Okay. So... When we talk about escape, this is where it comes from. And for up to this time, it was the way that you would have your sins forgiven. When these temple gates would be closed every night, they would open by themselves before morning every day for 40 years. And then as we look at the menorah, and we see that the light of God that was shining there in amongst their midst was no longer shining we see a radical shift in the way things were going to work. Now, the question is, is why don't we talk about these things? For me, these things fascinate me. For you, you may already be halfway asleep. These things fascinate me. And what I love most about all of it is that God entered into the physical world to, to show them that this new covenant was everything. The old covenant was gone. The new has come. There's a new way to know Christ and to live. And what many of us who follow Christ long to see is God working in this world, whether it be in our own lives, in the lives of others, in our churches. We want to see God at work because we believe God is alive and we, be, we believe that God is real and we believe God wants to do something in a hurting, captive, oppressed world. And what I have found is that when we become content with the knowledge of the gospel and the faith that we can know Christ when we die one day, and that is as far as we ever go, we miss one of the most wonderful things in living, walking with Jesus today, and that is to see God do miraculous things around them. Scripture tells us that we will see signs and wonders, and yet do we see signs and wonders in our world today? Many times when we hear people talking about signs and wonders those signs and wonders are always accompanied by an ask for more money. And somehow, amazingly, 
those ministers that are always talking about signs and wonders, if you'll just give them money, end up driving really nice cars and live in really nice homes. And what ends up happening is the world looks at that and says, I don't believe it. I don't believe that's true. At the same time, even though, as we talked about, those early patriarchs who did not have the law had the ability to see right and wrong, you and I today still have that ability whether we know Christ or not. The problem is, is that we will always view what's right and wrong through our own lens of what we want to believe is right or wrong. That's why two Christians can be in a room together. One can say abortion is absolutely evil. It is wrong to take the life of a child no matter what. And yet another Christian can be in the same room and say it is absolutely wrong to force a woman to carry a child to term that it may endanger her health or she's not ready to take care of the child or whatever. We will pursue what we believe is right in our own eyes, what God has always wanted us to see as what was right in his. And that's what the law did. So when Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, what he's saying is, what's right in God's eyes are still right in God's eyes. We're just not expecting you to live by the original covenant, which was impossible. There's just not enough goats in the world to atone for everybody's sin. And instead, he's inviting us to walk with him as our redeemer. To go deeper into the way that we live and the way that we walk. Many times, because we get content on just believing the most superficial of beliefs about Christ, we miss the greater work he wants to do in our lives. We miss the greater thing he is doing in the world today. And honestly, the the more that I study what has happened in the last 2,000 years of the church, the more I, I see many of our practices and the things that divide us, even within the church, are very much a reaction to what we talked about in the Reformation. Because in the Reformation, belief was held only to the priest. They would tell you what to believe, and they just so happened would only tell you the things that benefited them. And yet much of the Reformation had to do with everybody having Scripture in their own hand. And so that's why there's such an emphasis on the infallibility of God's Word. That's why there's such an emphasis on translating God's Word into so many languages and getting God's Word all over the world in whatever language someone speaks. You know, we, we, we're so focused on that. We're focused on faith in Christ alone, not focused on a priest, not faith in a priest and faith in Christ, but faith in Christ alone. And that we are saved not by our works, we are saved by faith, and yet what often happens in the life of a Christian is we ignore the works because we're supposed to be saved by faith. And yet what James says is, if you can't demonstrate your faith by your works, you don't have faith. And the reason that this is important is not because you need to get in line with what God wants to do. Even though that is, some of us have sat under teaching just like that. I have found that in the moments that I get in line because someone told me I was supposed to, I find very little spiritual nourishment in that. They may be okay with me. I may not get in trouble, and I may not feel guilty when they're teaching, but that doesn't mean I experience Christ anymore in my own life. Instead, it is when our faith grows that we experience Christ in supernatural ways just like these Jews Now, I don't put a red thread on my door. If I do, it's by accident, and I probably pulled a red sweater or something I won't be real happy about. I I don't see him turn my 
you know, red garments into white. That would be cool to walk in, and all of a sudden, it was red. Now it's white. Oh, <laughs> I had bleach in the wash. That was an accident. But, but instead, what I find so appealing is that by going deeper, I see more authentic ways of God working in my life. That is the thing that brings me back. That is the thing that makes me excited about my faith. That is the thing that says changing the way I live my life according to what God says is right has beneficial consequences for me because I experience Christ in incredible ways. And it's not that God all of a sudden begins to start working. It's just that sometimes we don't see it because we don't allow ourselves to go deeper. This is what Hebrews chapter 9 says. It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he's saying he's not coming now in the tabernacle or the temple, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Verse 12 says, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. They're directly talking about this Azazel goat and the goat for the Lord. That's exactly what he's talking about. Not by these things, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for their purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who though the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, they had to do this every single year. How much more is Jesus' sacrifice as the true unblemished sacrifice? Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. See, all these things I'm sharing with you is God showing the people of Israel that the old covenant was over and the new covenant had come in ways they could not explain. To this day, they cannot explain these acts of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement doing this for these 40-year period of time. It is undisputed. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when they commanded, for when, excuse me, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In other words, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, the old covenant, Almost everything was, is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. In other words, these elements of worship were copies of heavenly things. These things that were to symbolize something. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, listen to this, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. Talking about the temple. Or talking about the holy of holies or the tabernacle. He has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. 
now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly every year like the Day of Atonement, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It goes on to say, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Talking about us when he returns. Why do I share all this with you? Jesus' atonement for our sin rendered the redemptive works of the old covenant obsolete. That's why we don't bring goats in and sacrifice them today. Wouldn't that be fun? We don't do that today because we recognize that Jesus ended that practice. And he supernaturally was trying to show the entire nation of Israel that that practice had ended. What we also see in all of this is that God's presence would no longer sustain the temple, the light of God shining in the menorah. He would no longer stay there to sustain an old system that no longer had any value whatsoever but would now be found within the hearts of those who believed and followed Christ. 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. You are that temple. So the presence of God is now in you at Christmas time. When we think about the birth of baby Jesus in this pastoral, peaceful, quiet setting, we now know and understand that this was a very tumultuous time. Lots of of just terrible military rebellions that were destroying people and nations and would lead eventually to the destruction of the temple, which would enter into, if you're a student of the New Testament, the diaspora, the dispersion, when the Jews would leave Jerusalem and then be cast out over the entire area. This is all of this happened with Jesus trying to show us that he has come to live within you. You are that temple now. He's not here and in this place. The fact that we light these candles doesn't mean anything when it comes to your faith. These are symbols of things that we believe and we worship with. They are not the presence of God because the presence of God is in you. So when we are not experiencing the miraculous works of God in our lives, it is not because God is not able. There is something else that is keeping us from seeing it. As God's presence left the temple and entered into those who have been redeemed, you and I have to recognize that we have to leave our comfortable lives and reveal this redemption to the rest of the world. This is what I really wanted you to see out of this. God left the place to go out into humanity. And when we begin to understand how critical redemption is and how important the Redeemer is and how amazing this is of what He has done, He's calling us to go out and do this in our own lives, ourselves. Acts 1.8 says, but, if you will receive, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Galatians 3 says this. Now before faith came, 
we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. Just as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is one of the the things that I'm, I'm absolutely convicted about, not only in my own life, but in our church and in in the church in general. We have so many ways to divide ourselves. Right now, we're divided in very obvious ways, by skin color or by nationality. We're divided by gender or by those who reject all gender identities. We're divided by Democrat or Republican or Independent or Libertarian or whatever your political views are. We're divided by denominations. We're divided by churches Even within churches, we often divide ourselves by age, we divide ourselves by occupation, we divide ourselves by the way we live or which part of town we're in. And yet what we see over and over again is Jesus saying, you are all one people. We are one. And yet we act in so many divisions that when people look at us, Do they see the love of Christ in us that we love each other? Or do they see our division? Thinking about doing a a series on just social media. (laughs) And all the things that, that it can be and all the things that it often is. Do people see in us that God has redeemed us and has come into our lives and that God has changed us? Do you realize of any group of people on the face of the planet that should be bringing people together into unity, it is this body. Of any group of people that should be telling telling someone, I don't care what your color color of your skin is, I don't care what your nationality is, I I, I don't care where you worship, I'm going to love you. And now we are in such a divided time We are in such a divided time that you and I can't even carry a conversation on with somebody who has a different opinion from us. Because if they have a different opinion, then we we automatically shut it down and we have judged them and whatever stereotype that we believe people with that opinion are. We can't even have a conversation about that. And yet God has called us to love, to love each other. In the church today, there are questions about should we love those who are transgender why is that even a question? Now, we, we do not have to say, we do not have to propagate the idea that you should be transgender in order to love someone who's transgender. And yet somehow we have begun to believe that if a person disagrees with something about our faith, we ostracize them. That somehow if we bring the veil back in, we can, we can keep ourselves from those sinful people that They might rub off on us. And yet God said, no, I have ripped the veil so that I am out in the world. And so where do we go as a people who are one people under God, one Lord, one baptism, one calling, one spirit working in all of us, working to 
consistent places. Where do we go with this? I will tell you that in my own life, I struggle with these things daily. I I stand up and may sound like I have all the answers for everything, which clearly I don't. I struggle with these things as you struggle with these things. And yet I am convinced that if we understand Jesus as our Redeemer, then we must act in accordance with that redemption. That means we are one people. That means we have to go out, and while God may not be turning clothes into different colors and turning strips of scarlet into white anymore, he wants us to go out and show what God has done in our lives to the world around us. And yet, what I know about us all is that we have so much going on in our lives. We are so busy. Many times we miss the opportunity to see God's miraculous things at work. And even worse, we miss opportunities for God to do miraculous things through us. Sometimes those miraculous things may not feel as miraculous to those around you. But yet when you pull out into traffic and someone really makes you mad usually, but yet somehow you're at peace and you're not telling them they're number one in various ways or because the window's up saying things that you hope nobody from your church sees you say, I hope that person didn't go to my church. We feel a calm come over us. It's okay. I'm going to let it go. I don't feel as angry. That's a miraculous working of God in your life to fight against what your tendency is. When you're walking down the street and God says, this person that you're walking next to just needs you to be kind to them right now. And you say, okay, God, I'm going to do that. And you have no idea where that's going to go. God is working miraculously in your life, speaking to you. When you have an opportunity to be a peacemaker in your place of work, rather than stirring up anxiety, that is God working within you. At Christmas time, when we recognize that in midst of all the shopping and consumer stuff, that He is the center of our lives, that is God working in you. And God has a plan for you to reach the people that you see every day. When we understand redemption, when we understand what God is doing as our Redeemer, we need to pass it along. There is a need to go and tell it. I love that we did that song just a minute ago. We need to go and tell people about the redemption that is available for them. We look back at what they were focused on in this time period. This is what I want to end with. We look back at what, what they were focused on. They weren't so much focused on how we do church. They weren't so much focused on what kind of worship style we use. They weren't so much focused on what kind of programming do we have or, you know, what kind of small groups do we have or, you know, what kind of fun activities do we do or, you know, do they serve organic coffee or do they just serve the cheap stuff? And if you want to know, we serve the cheap stuff, which, you know, in nine out of ten taste tests went over the expensive stuff, which is amazing, isn't it? The cheapest stuff generally wins all the taste tests. Not always, but... uh, What they were focused on was that they were forgiven for their sins. 
That is what this is about. That is what the, of Jesus coming into the world, that baby that would break the silence, the baby that would come into a time of great upheaval, was that our sins would be forgiven. That is what we were focused on when we talk about, do I go deeper? Is there this awkward tension within me because I've just been so satisfied with where I am in my life and in my faith for so long? And now I know the Holy Spirit is trying to tell me something, but I just don't have time. And I just don't, don't really think I have the will to, to go any further. For them, it was all about, I've been redeemed from my sins. Once and for all, and I get to walk with him and know him and see his miraculous work in my life. And so I would ask you at this time of year, this is a wonderful time of year for personal reflection on where are you in life. There are some years that I come in and I'm like, oh, I'm just so excited to continue where we've been going. Other years I come in I'm like, oh, we got to change everything. I don't know if y'all ever feel that way. We got to change everything. But this is a wonderful time of reflection to say, am I focused in my life on recognizing I've been redeemed from this sin? This debt that I could not pay has been paid. I do not have to have the Azazel goat. He has become the Azazel goat for us. God's chosen people at this point are no longer determined by those of a specific nationality but by those who hunger and thirst for the eternal redemption that is offered by Jesus. So I would leave you with this. His, his sacrifice was perfect. He is not in need of your help at all. I know so many people, they are very aware of their faults and they are trying to atone from them every single day. Jesus doesn't need your help. He was a perfect atonement. He doesn't need you to atone for those things. What I would also say is that if you have fallen into a place where I find myself falling into from time to time, where I'm just okay to believe that Jesus is real. I'm just okay to believe that Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. I'm just okay to believe that one day I'm going to go to heaven and be with him. And that's, I'm good with that. Let's just stay, stick with that. I've got everything else covered in life. I would encourage you to think deeper. The Holy Spirit will not lead you there. He will want you to dig deeper, to go further, to find more, to experience Him in new ways, and to see Him at work in new ways. Wherever you are, I want you to know that He died for you. No matter how bad things are, I've shared the story of my family members who thought that they had lived such terrible lives that God would never forgive them. That is a terrible way to live your life because there is no sin that he will not pay for. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some times that we need to go say we're sorry to people, right? I've messed up, but Jesus saved me, so I'm not going to tell you I'm sorry. You know, we can't get away with that, guys. You know, when our wives say, are you going to say you're sorry? Well, Jesus died on the cross for me. I mean, what else do you want from me? You know, I don't know what else to say. I, he's a perfect atonement. I don't, ha- I don't have a goat around here to pass my sins on to. Sometimes we need to say we're sorry. Sometimes we wrong somebody, we need to go and make it right. Sometimes we just need to spend more time with Christ in our own lives to see and to recognize He wants to do something supernatural in you. He's been doing that from the beginning. But He wants you to see it too. So as we close out this part of our series, I hope that you see a little deeper into what is offered to you through Christ. If you question whether you're good enough to receive it, join the club. 
But thank goodness you, do not, you don't have to be good enough to receive it. And for us as a church, I, I, we've been sharing for, for a little while now that in January, we're going to be going through some pretty significant, um, some pretty significant things together. We're going to be asking you some, some pretty significant questions, and we're going to be seeking God in some pretty significant ways. I hope you'll bring this with you, an understanding that He is inviting us to work with Him in this world to share the redemption that He has given us. You have an opportunity to go and tell. We have an opportunity as a church to be uniters, to be healers, and to go and tell the great news of the great Redeemer who came and gave His life for us. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank You for all of the ways that You have not just forgiven us, but you have wholeheartedly received us into your family. We are adopted as sons and daughters into your family. No one is better than anyone else in your family. No one is worse than anyone else in your family. God, I thank you that you don't require us to clean ourselves up before we come to you, but your blood covers all of our sin. God, I thank you that you still work in miraculous ways in our world. I pray that you would help us to see those in our own lives and in our church. Lives that are changed, lives that are different. Those who did not know Christ and then they did and it changed everything. I pray that you would help us to see in these coming weeks as as many of us will move into New Year's as a time of natural self-reflection. I pray that you would help us to see our lives as you would have us to see them. Help us to forgive ourselves for the things that we have carried along with us like heavy baggage that won't go away. I pray that you will give us new hope and new vision for where you want us to go in this world and in this life and how we can see you at work within our own lives. God, we thank you for your redemption. We thank you that our debt has been paid and we thank you that your love for us is so overwhelming that you overlooked our sin through Christ. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.